Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil Colonna, and this is Nashville. When Nashvillians are having conversations about how our juvenile justice system can be improved, the name Judge Sheila Calloway is normally a big part of those discussions. For years, she has been an advocate for restorative justice and worked to keep young people out of the juvenile justice system. Her thoughts and ideas are relied upon by the media, including This Is Nashville. She's been a guest on the show on many occasions, but this time, we want to get to know the person who has been working and leading the juvenile justice system for years. Judge Sheila Calloway, thank you for being here. Welcome back to This Is Nashville. Thank you. I'm excited about being here. I love your show, and I'm excited about being on it again. Well, thank you so much, and flattery will get you everywhere here. <laughs> this is Nashville. Yeah, I know you're really busy. Thank you again for coming in. How are you today? I am doing well today. I'm doing well today. Wonderful. Wonderful. So, you know, you work in the juvenile justice system, but you got your start working with adults. Now, some people don't really know or understand the that juvenile court is different from adult court. What are the differences and the purposes that they serve? There are a lot of differences between the adult system and the juvenile system. You know, when you think about the criminal court systems and how they operate, the adult system is more about crime and punishment. It's more about um, you did the crime, you served the time. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's not a lot of room, um, or at least historically, there was not a lot of room in the adult system for um, figuring out why someone did something or how we can help that person um, be rehabilitated. It was just about they did this crime, and so now the law says they have to do this amount of time or whatever the sentence would be. Juvenile court um, is different, and it started literally back in the late 1800s, the 1900s, early 1900s, when some ladies in Chicago um, said that we should not be throwing youth into facilities with um, grownups, and that the youth have an opportunity to change, and they really have the ability to be rehabilitated. And so as early as 1900s in Chicago's where it started and then it caught on like fire around the country that said, we need a separate system for juveniles, mainly because they understood then, which is what I understand now, is that juveniles really can be rehabilitated. Hmm. Um, I don't know if they were talking about brain development back in those days, yeah. but now we know without a shadow of a doubt, the science shows that you your brain doesn't fully develop until you're around 25 years old. And so we should not be punishing people the same way um, if their their brains aren't fully developed, if they're not understanding all of the consequences of their actions, they should be treated differently. And we know that juveniles can, uh, that children can grow out of the behaviors that they may have. Mm-hmm. And so there should be a separate system for them. Okay, in your career, have you seen a leaning towards juveniles being treated like adults in the juvenile justice system. You know, unfortunately, you know, that pendulum tends to swing and we were on the good side of it and swinging towards people understanding um, 
why it was important that our children that come into the system be treated differently. Now, at least in Tennessee, you see some legislative actions or some thoughts about some legislation um, that is swinging it the other way. Mm. They're saying that there are more youth should be put into the adult system. Um, more youth who are committing crimes, certain type of crimes, should automatically be treated as adults. Um, unfortunately, Years ago that happened and it proved that it didn't work and it didn't work well for the youth. It didn't work well for our communities. And it's unfortunate if we tend to swing back to that position again. Now, I want to talk to you about the soon to be completed Davidson County Juvenile Justice Center. You smiling. You got a big <laughs> smile on now. You know, this is a big improvement over the current facilities. You had a big hand in the development and design of the center. Tell us what will it be like and what are some of the features? I am super excited about the Nashville Youth Campus for Empowerment. Um, Mm. We're moving from a 92,000 square foot building on um, maybe two acres of yard to a um, facility uh, that has different buildings. So it's going to be about 300,000 square foot total on 14 acres. Wow. And so it's really going to be a campus. It's going to encompass everything that we need for our children and our families um, that come through the system to be able to have the resources that they need right there in that facility. Uh, It's going to have everything that they need. It's going to be restorative. It's going to be family friendly. It's going to be trauma informed and people really are going to help change their lives while they're at this facility. Mm -hmm. I'm definitely looking forward to it. Uh, I'm free to go through every piece of it. I don't know how much time we have, but there's a a lot that's going to go into this building. I'm going to ask you more about the specifics of the building, but let me ask first, is the juvenile justice system a prison jail? And, you know, can we, is that a good explanation to explain what it is? So it is not. Okay. Um, We do, unfortunately, there are some youth that we have to, Um, hold in our facility until their case has been heard. Um, Those youth are being held in what we call our pretrial, the pretrial housing facility. Um, And so these are the youth who have been alleged to have committed some of the more serious crimes in our community. And they only get held in the pretrial housing facility if by the statute, their um, their behaviors or the, the charges that they're alleged to have committed um, are a very serious offense against that uses um, bodily harm or that has bodily harm and uses a, a weapon. And so you're talking about the youth who are charged with murders, very serious aggravated robberies, um, sometimes possession of handguns. Um, those youth who we don't feel might be safe on the out in the community yet, mm-hmm. um, but need some more help before they go back into the community. The youth that we hold, it's pre-trial. And so once they have their trial, they're no longer held in our facility. So they're either gone back into this community on some type of court supervision, or they go to the Department of Children's Services custody in a treatment and rehabilitation center, or if it's a really bad crime and I feel like it's appropriate, their case may be tried in the adult system and they end up in the adult system. Okay. Now, there's an emphasis on the staff being trauma-informed. Now, tell me, why is it important that people who work there be equipped with those capabilities? You know, it is so important that the people who work with people who have been through so much trauma in their lives understand what that means 
and understand how we approach them, how we do business with them. Because in many, many years and many times past, the way that we talk to people, the way that we interact with people, the way that we um, decide cases, make decisions could actually be more harmful to those who have um, gone through whatever the trauma it is that they've gone through. Mm -hmm. And so if we're not aware of how our actions and how our language and how our behaviors affect the people that we serve each and every day, then we could be serving them inappropriately. And so it's important for my staff to understand um, everyone that works with youth in their in their families that they are with us because of some traumatic experience and people respond to trauma differently. And we have to understand that there are a number of ways that we can respond. And that doesn't mean that we don't hold people accountable for their actions. We do, but we hold it in a way that they can learn, that they can grow, that they can be rehabilitated from the experience, not a way that um, ostracizes them or that makes them um, deeper into their trauma, that, mm. that brings it out, that brings out you know, worse behaviors. We have to be equipped to learn how to deal with everybody as they come to us. Will the center have vocational and educational training for the young folks who are there? It most certainly will. I'm glad you asked. Okay. <laughs> so um, for the youth who are at our pretrial housing facility, um, it will have lots of opportunities that we don't currently have now. Um, it will have a full um, scale school where there will be different classrooms. Currently, if you came down to our facility right now and you saw where they're in school, it's a one one little room that only sits maybe a comfortably 12 people. Mm. Um, and it's not very inducive for a lot of studying. And so or a lot of learning. And so the facility that we will have now in the future, the nice campus will have a full um, education part of it. And within there, there'll be a number of classrooms so that we can adequately separate those who need to be on certain grade levels or those who uh, might be English learners or those who may have um, special education IEPs. We'll be able to separate them truly in the classrooms that they need to be in and have the teachers and the support system per class. It will also have different vocational areas and spaces. Um, it will definitely have um, one of the things that's most popular um, in our um, facility now is it has a cosmetology cosmetology area okay. uh, with some barber barber chairs, and so we work with agencies that come in and teach our youth how to cut hair and how to do hair, um, and so that will be con definitely continued into the, the facility in the future. Now, there I hear there also will be a twenty four hour assessment center. Tell us what is that and what purpose will that serve? This the assessment center is probably the reason that we first started talking about the need for a new facility. Um, we currently have gaps in our system, and one of the biggest gaps is for those youth who are not detainable in our current facility by law, who have done some type of offense but need help. Um, for instance, if a child runs away from home and they're picked up at 2 o'clock in the morning, and they're brought to the only place that the police currently can take them is to our detention facility. By, local, by state law as well as by federal law, we are not allowed to hold them in a detention facility. Mm. And so we immediately have to call the parent and say, You're, we've picked up your child, 
um, you need to come and pick them up. A lot of times the parents are like, well, if I come pick them up, they just ran away from me. If I come pick them up, they're going to run again. I need help. I need something to do. We can't give them the help then. We can't hold the child. And so if they refuse to come pick up the child, then that child ends up going into the Department of Children's Services custody in the foster care system. And knowing, unfortunately, the lack of spaces, beds, foster homes, residential treatment facilities for our youth. And caseworkers. And, and caseworkers. Um, once we put a child in DCS custody, that child a lot of times will end up in what they call resource linkage which is um, an office that they kind of have refurbished to make it a place where kids can stay overnight if they need to. And so they'll go to resource linkage with, where they'll have to sit with a caseworker um, and wait until they can find a placement for that child. Okay. And sometimes they're sitting there for days on end. So it's not a system that's working well right now. Mm. And so what we will do with the 24-hour assessment center, we will have... Um, Social workers will have partnerships with um, nonprofit organizations that will staff that center for 24 hours a day. Um, it will also have respite beds so that if a child gets picked up at two o'clock in the morning and the parents not comfortable picking up the child at that point, that child will have a safe place to lay their head down. We will make an appointment for the parent to come in the morning. We'll be able to assess at that point what the child needs, what the parent needs, what it's going to take to get the child to go back home safely with the proper supports um, around that entire family so that that child doesn't come back into the system later on. So that's a situation for for children and young people who may be runaways. But you mentioned like the students or students, young people who are not detainable. So if they're charged with the crime, are they then placed within the facilities? Is that how it works? So if, if the charges, if it's a non-detainable charge, it, they will go to the assessment center as okay. well. So it's anything from our status offenses, which include, you know, running away, um, truancy during the daytime, uh, learning during school hours up to our non-detainable charges, which a lot of them are domestic assaults where they're fighting somebody at the home. Um, we get a lot of, um, I'm trying to think of some more of the crimes that we get that are non-detainable. Um, but a lot of them are your uh, simple assaults, um, your disorderly conducts. All those things are not detainable. And um, by law, we can't hold them in detention. And so this is an opportunity for us to get the services into them early. Now, there's something called the Safe Exchange Center. What's that for? So our Safe Exchange Center is for those cases. We do a lot of cases um, where we are working with parents who are not married and they're splitting time with their child and they have to exchange that child. Mm -hmm. And that's from anywhere from zero to 17 years old. Um, occasionally we have parents who don't get along and those parents who don't get along tend to have a lot of anger and frustration and it comes out a lot of times in the time that they exchange the child. Mm -hmm. And so what we have been doing now is we will tell them to do that at a police station. And so if you think about a three-year-old child who's with one parent and has to be exchanged in front of the police at the police station in front of another parent, how does that affect that child? Yeah. And so we want to eliminate that trauma because that is trauma. And we want to make it a friendlier 
um, healthier drop-off place. And so we'll have a safe exchange where one parent will come at a certain time, certain, will drop the child off with a staff member in a, a nice, friendly atmosphere in a nice, comfortable place. And then that parent will leave, and then the other parent will come to pick up the child. And so it'll be a safe exchange where the parents don't ever have to see each other, don't ever have to communicate, don't ever have to argue. Mm. Uh, they can go one way, and the uh, parent will come in the other way, and we'll be able to safely exchange that child. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Colonna. We're talking this hour with Judge Sheila Calloway about the issues facing the juvenile court system. You can tweet us your comments at This Is Nashville. Okay, so the prison abolition movement has been around for a very long time, but it came into the public discourse more widely after George Floyd, the George Floyd uprising of 2020. You know, the gist of the position is that the prison system should be eliminated and replaced with rehabilitation to avoid punishment and institutionalization. It could be fair to say that prison abolitionists would want all of the things that this new center is providing, but they would think that those things should happen outside of the justice system. Well, what's your response on that? to that? You know, I want as many of those things to happen outside of the justice system as well. And so that is why for years that I've been the judge since 2014, we have worked um, a lot to um, to um, do more diversions where we're diverting more youth out of the system. And, you know, I'm happy to say that now currently we're between 60 and 70 percent of the cases that get referred to our system. We're diverting them out of the system. Um, and we're not diverting them out and just saying, go forth and send no more. We're connecting them with community services and community providers, mentors around our community that can work one on one with our youth because the community can do more for our youth than the court system can. Mm. And what we absolutely know is that the further a child comes into a system, the more likely it is that they're going to stay in the system. Versus if we if they have a very small touch and they move out, then the likelihood of them coming back is slim to none. And so we're very proud of our recidivism numbers that we have for our youth that go through our diversion programs. Um, They don't come back often. Um, We're averaging about between four to six percent recidivism rate on youth that are um, diverted from the system. That's a good thing. We want to reserve the system and the system resources for those youth who are much higher risk of reoffending and have much greater needs. And so there are youth um, that have committed some very serious crimes that we have to make sure that we are providing for them the tools that they need to be rehabilitated and so that they can eventually come back into the community. I would agree. It'd be great if we could do this without a prison type system. Um, we don't have an answer for that yet. Um, there are many um, across the world. There are so many countries that do it better than what we do in America. Um, and I think this center, our National Youth Empowerment, um, National Youth Campus for Empowerment, is going to be a model in that design. Um, our where we are housing. Um, our youth, our pretrial housing facility is not going to be a, a jail looking like facility like we have now. Mm-hmm. It's going to be uh, restorative. It's going to be rehabilitative. Um, it's going to be more like dorm rooms. They're going to be secure so that there's um, no chance for them to um, just walk off the campus on their own. Yeah. Um, but it will be secure, but it will be very um, 
soft furniture. It'll be um, a lot of natural lights, a lot of green space for the youth as well. Um, Just an opportunity for them to feel normal and not institutionalized. Let's take a short break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Judge Sheila Calloway. We'll talk about the lack of attorneys for indigent clients, learn what inspired her to become a lawyer, and what working as a public defender taught her about fairness and justice. Listen to our unabridged conversation with Judge Calloway at WPLN.org or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil Colonna, and this is Nashville. We're talking with Judge Sheila Calloway, the presiding judge over the Davidson County Juvenile Court. Now, before the break, we learned about the new Juvenile Justice Center under construction. And now let's learn a little bit about her story and what inspired her to become an attorney. Judge Calloway, thank you again for being here. Thank you. I'm okay. having a good time. This is really great. I always enjoy having you as a guest <laughs> and talking with you. Now, before we get into your story about how you became an attorney, I, I want to talk about something that's happening here in Nashville in the state of Tennessee. We have a dearth of public defenders who are able to defend indigent clients. Can you tell us about this situation and why it's so grave? Yes, I could definitely talk a lot about that. And it's not that we have a dearth in public defenders. We have a public defender office that's run by Martisha Johnson, and they have um, enough attorneys, and they and they do a good job. But they cannot handle every case that comes into the system. Okay. And so what happens is, um, for instance, in the juvenile system, we have lots of different cases that uh, people are afforded the right to have an attorney. Um, of course, on the cases of juveniles who've committed crimes, um, we would, number one, use the public defender's office. But if it's um, a four people, four youth who commit a crime together, um, so four youth steal a car together, the public defender can only represent one of them. And so we would have to find an attorney for each of the youth. Mm-hmm. So we need three additional attorneys. Um, In the juvenile system, we also um, do the cases where parents are um, uh, or a child is alleged to have been neglected or abused by their parents. Mm -hmm. And in those cases, each parent has a right to have their own attorney along with an attorney for the child, where we call our guardian ad litem. So in each of those cases, you have to have three attorneys and those are not public defenders. Those are private attorneys who um, are willing to take appointed cases. Um, And then the last category we also need appointed attorneys are, we do child support cases uh, in our parentage for unmarried parents. And if a parent is ordered to pay child support and for some odd reason they have not paid it and they are facing a contempt charge where they could go to jail, they have a right to have an attorney as well. And so, again, those cases are not handled by the public defender's office. Those have to be private attorneys who are willing to take these appointed cases. Now, you said private attorneys, keyword willing, willing to take these cases. How do you compel private attorneys to take on these cases? It is very difficult. Um, th- currently, the rate of pay for a private attorney to take one of these cases has not changed since I think the time was 2007 was the last time that the rate of pay had changed. And 
the cost of living um, around Nashville, Tennessee has increased so much since that time period. Okay, so we need more attorneys to help people who can't afford an attorney to take the cases. Who decides to give these attorneys more money to up the rate? So that comes from our state government. And so it is a the the um, process of who pays for the attorneys comes from the administrative office of the court, which is run by the Supreme Court. And the budget from that comes from the state budget. And so the legislature have to be the one who vote on the state budget and what goes into the budget. And for several years, the administrative office of the courts has asked for an increase um, in their budget so that they could pay attorneys more. And for several years, it's been denied and they've not gotten that extra money um, in order to pay attorneys more. And so what's happening is um, attorneys are not willing to take cases anymore because they can't even cover their overhead for their practice Mm. in order to cover these cases. And it's particularly difficult in juvenile court because juvenile court cases tend to last a long time. And so if you're, for instance, uh, appointed as a guardian at litem, you're expected to start that case from day one when there's a preliminary hearing. If the child's been removed from the parents, you go to court within two days from when the child's been removed from the parents. And a lot of those cases take years before that child gets permanency. Easy two to three years. Not only is the pay rate low, there's a cap on how much money you can ask for each case. And so a regular case of a child being neglected by their parents, um, a guardian litem can only claim about $1,500 on that case. And that literally by the first three or four court hearings, they've already done that cap. And so they have another two to three years that of they, work on that unpaid. Unpaid. Wow. Yeah. We'll see what happens. Okay, now I, I want to talk a little bit about your life. Okay. <laughs> You're from Louisville, Kentucky, right? That's correct. What was your early life? What was your childhood like? Um, I, I, <laughs> I lived, um, even as a young black woman, I, I had a fairly privileged life. Mm-hmm. My mother and father were both college educated. They met at um, Kentucky State University. They were very professional. Um, they absolutely knew that their education was the way to get ahead. So education was important in your household. Education was never a thought. Mm -hmm. It was something that you were expected to do. Um, There was never a a thought of bringing home a C on a report card. Sounds like my folks. (laughs) (laughs) I tried it a couple times and I got in trouble each and every time. Yes. Do you have siblings? I do. I have a, I have a sister. She's two years older than me. Okay. My sister is uh, Nita Thomas, who is um, on November 11th going to be inaugurated as the first um, African-American um, president of North Central College in Naperville, Illinois. All right. And so if, for both of us. We clearly took on the mission that education is important. Yes. And we gotta we've gotta do stuff with it. High achievement is a big part <laughs> of the family line. I like that. Now, tell me this, where did you where did you get the idea to become an attorney? You know, to be honest, I don't exactly know exactly where it came from. I do know that when I was in fourth grade, I wrote a paper 
that said, when I grow up, I want to be an attorney. I want to be a lawyer and I want to help people. Mm. Um, My mom kept our stuff and she, you know, just always had pals and stuff. And one day when they were moving to a bigger house after me and my sister moved out, I'll never understand that. But (laughs) uh, she had us go through all our stuff and and take it away. But I found that paper. I, I don't know if it came from like a career day where we saw someone that was a lawyer and I was fascinated by that job or if I saw something on TV, there was no one in my family that had been a lawyer. Mm. And so um, I'm not sure exactly where the idea came from, but it stuck with me in fourth grade and it never went away. And you followed through. I mean, you attended Vanderbilt for undergrad and law school. Correct. Then you get your law degree, you pass the bar. Next step, public defender. Correct. What was it like for you those first couple of years? Oh, it was exciting. It was exciting. I worked in the public defender's office at the time. Um, Carl Dean, who later became the mayor of Nashville, was the public defender. He was my boss, and he was a great boss. He um, was very supportive. He um, wanted people to grow and wanted to learn in, in the job force. And so it was a good job working for him. Mm. Um, I learned so much about people in the public defender's office. Um, Again, I kind of grew up in a privileged um, middle, upper class um, neighborhood. Um, I was not bused, although there was busing in Louisville because we, our neighborhood school was a predominantly white school. And so we stayed in our neighborhood, went to, you know, walked to school or, you know, rode the bus with our friends that were in our neighborhood. And so I never really saw um, poverty. I never saw um, mental health issues. I never saw people suffering from drug addiction. Um, in the public defender's office, I learned about people and I learned about life. Mm. Um, I learned about desperation. I learned about um, how difficult it can be if you don't have the right people supporting you and how life is hard for a lot of people. Um, is things I never... You know, I'm I'm happy to say my parents either shielded us from that or we just never saw that. Mm. I will also say my parents were such supportive people of others. Um, we always had people staying with us. Uh, I mean, my sister call them our strays, our stray people. Uh, but you know, we'd come home and be Uncle Tom, and we like, okay, who's I've never met this uncle before. But it was someone that my parents would know who needed a help up. Needed a place to stay for a couple of days. And, and so that instilled a spirit in you to give back and to help others. Absolutely. Absolutely. They lived that every day. Mm. Now, you said you learned about life from the clients that you worked with. But I can imagine you also learned about life from the judges that you worked under as well or worked with as well. Being, cause they're human beings. They have procedures, quirks, idiosyncrasies that, you know, really influence how people, how they went about presiding over their courtrooms. Why does knowing a judge's personality, why does that matter when it comes to representing a client? You know, knowing the judge that you're practicing in front of is so important in when you're practicing. Um, you know, I think it's almost close to malpractice if attorney doesn't know about the judge that they're, they're practicing in front of. Because if you go in front of a judge and you present information when you're, when you're not aware that that judge doesn't want to hear it that way or doesn't want information presented that way, um, a lot of times that's going to affect your client more than it's going to affect you as the attorney. And so, you know, one of the things that we learned in the public defender's office is we were assigned to different judges for a period of time. 
and you get to know ins and outs about that that judge and about what makes them tick and what makes them angry and what makes them not angry. And so that makes your practice better because you're learning what you can and cannot do per each courtroom that you're in. So were there any judges that ran tough courtrooms where you learned a lot? <laughs> uh, absolutely. Um, when I when I started, everybody starts in the general sessions level at the public defender's office. And you learn, you know, all at the time there was like seven different general sessions judges. I think there's like 12 now. Um, and so you learn those judges. But when you move up, in the public defender's office, you move up to a criminal court. And so the first court that I got to move up to was Judge Ann Lacey Johns. Mm -hmm. And Judge Johns had a a reputation for being very strict in her courtroom. Um, You basically couldn't talk unless you were spoken to. Um, you couldn't stand unless you were spoken, unless you were responding. And if you were responding to her, you had to stand. Your clients had to always say, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, or yes, your honor, no, your honor. Um, you had to dress a certain way um, in order to come in, into her courtroom. And so these were things that we would have a list of rules okay. that we would share with our client and say, Make sure all of this is done before our next courtroom. You know, if the the client was on bond, they had to have a job. Mm. They had to have a job. Um, There were just so many rules that you had to follow through um, in order to um, just be in that courtroom. And a lot of times it felt so unfair and unjust. Mm. So you're you're kind of struggling working under Judge Johns, but then you get transferred to a new judge, Thomas Shriver, who yes. you recorded a story for the public radio show, The Moth, about this one of your first trials in his court. Let's take a listen to it. So I had a client, Mr. Blacksmith, and he wasn't charged with very much. He was an older gentleman, and it was minor charges, and he had never been to court, and he just was nervous about being in that courtroom. And when he showed up, mm, He smelled like a distillery. I mean, I thought he had bathed in a bath full of beer. It was just terrible, and I didn't know what to do. I was hiding him. I felt dread. I just didn't know how to handle it. I was giving him every mint I could find. I was spraying him with perfume, whatever I could do, because he was going to jail, because he smelled like a distillery. So finally, they called him into the courtroom. And immediately, the prosecutor stood up and said, Your Honor, I want his bond revoked. He's been drinking. (sighs) Judge Shriver looked at us, and he must have sensed that fear and that dread. And he said to my, I asked my client if he had been drinking. And my client was very honest with him. He said, yeah, yeah, I've been drinking a little. And he said, well, what you been drinking? And he said, well, I had a beer. Well, how much beer did you have? Well, I only had one beer, but it was a 40 ounce. (laughs) I knew it. The floor started opening up. We were done. We were done. But then I heard Judge Shriver snickering. Well, actually, he was really laughing. The judge was actually laughing. And he said to Mr. Blacksmith, now, Mr. Blacksmith, next time you come, don't drink before you get here. You can go. Now, Judge Shriver wasn't being lenient on him. 
he was being fair. He recognized that this gentleman made a mistake. Okay, so what was your reaction when Judge Shriver began to laugh in court that day? Now, when I saw, I saw him, I think, bef- laughing before I actually heard him laughing. And Judge Shriver was, um, he had thick glasses and kind of thick hair, and he was kind of slumped over, and I could see his shoulders kind of moving up and down. And then I heard something, and I was like, it was just a sense of relief. It was... Um, a sense of I am in a place where someone understands life and someone understands people. Mm-hmm. Um, I am. I felt comforted knowing that Judge Shriver wasn't one who was going to be um, a stickler to rules that were unfairly placed on people. Um, that he, although he was about accountability and making sure people didn't, making sure people did the right thing, he didn't do it in a way where people were stifled or where people were belittled or people felt like they were inhuman. Mm. He brought out that human side of people and he brought out that caring side. Um, where he could say, I care about you. I want you to do better. I'm going to give you a chance to do that. He was preventing that trauma you were speaking about earlier in the show that Absolutely. people go through. Mm. Absolutely. Now, you were working in Judge, Judge Shriver's court, but then you got some news that deeply moved you and impacted your path in the justice system. Can you tell us what that is? Absolutely. I had worked with Judge Shriver in his courtroom for a couple of years, and um Honestly, I think um, if, if I would have, I'd have been there forever. Um, it was just such a comforting place. But one Saturday, I got a call from my supervisor, and she asked me, was I sitting down? I was like, mm, no, you need, do I need to? And she had just learned that Judge Shriver had, um, had been in his office that Friday evening, and um, he passed away. And uh, apparently his wife, he didn't come home and his wife was, of course, concerned and called. They went to do a welfare check at the office. And sure enough, he was at his desk, um, probably working on some brief, (laughs) but he had passed away. And it literally felt like a piece of me had passed along with him. How did working with Judge Shriver, how did that how did that inspire the way you work today? You know, I think about Judge Shriver's ability to find the human piece in everybody. And um, it's something that I strive to do on a regular basis. Um, Judge Shriver believed that people needed a second chance and that everything wasn't um, worthy of folks going to jail all the time. Um, That jail was only needed for those who... Um, may have committed the worst crimes, but it wasn't for people who just needed um, a chance. Let's take one more short break. When we come back, we'll ask Judge Calloway about how adult court can learn from juvenile court and how it operates. We'll also discuss alternatives to punishment that fit within the restorative justice model. Listen to our unabridged conversation with Judge Calloway at WPLN.org or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be right back.
I'm Khalil Lekelona, and this is Nashville. My guest today is Judge Sheila Calloway. She's the presiding judge for the Davidson County Juvenile Court. Now, we learned what inspired her to become an attorney and how her experiences as a public defender motivated the work she does today. Now let's learn more about a point we address at the top of the conversation, adult court versus juvenile court. Judge Calloway, again, thank you for this conversation. You know, you pointed out the differences between adult court and juvenile court, but what do you think the adult court system can learn from juvenile court? You know, I think there's a lot that the adult system can learn. And I will say that um, today's adult system is a lot different than it, what it was when I was a public defender back in the 90s. Um, now they do have um, several different specialty courts that work on um, helping people overcome and giving people second chances. So they have um, a court for mental health people. Um, so if people who are suffering from mental health illnesses that commit crimes, they can go through a mental health court, um, make sure that they're getting the right services and resources um, to help them not to get back out and, and commit crimes again because of their mental health illnesses. They have a veterans court now that works with veterans um, that have committed crimes and are um, needing to help up. They now have recovery courts for um, um, people who are going through drug and alcohol addictions. And they also have a um, court for um, people who are caught up in the um, sex trafficking industry. And so they're learning a lot. Um, what we can continue to do is to teach them through the juvenile system and the things that we're doing that everybody really does deserve a second chance. And if we think about looking at why people commit the crimes, if we look at what we call adverse childhood experiences, um, what we know about adverse childhood experiences is that um, the more trauma and the more um, uh, things that a child's gone through after 18, um, under 18, under the years of 18 years old, shows um, kind of the trajectory of what can happen to them as an adult. And so if you have um, a score of seven on the ACEs scale, what that means is that you're more likely to end up um, with some type of um, disease or dying early or risky behaviors that end you up into the criminal justice system. If we know that, if we're asking everybody to be aware of what your ACE score is, think about it, we, how we can help people become resilient, how we can help people overcome that trauma that they had at a young age. Even as an adult system, we can say, what happened to you? Mm -hmm. Is not what did you do, what do you deserve, but what happened to you and how can we help you overcome that? You know, that's interesting because, you know, you're talking about healthy alternatives to punishment. And it's, you know, but it's for some people out there, it's difficult for them to think and have mercy for somebody who's committed murder or a violent crime. You know, how, can, how can we look at them? I mean, because I'm thinking about we need to make sure that people are serving society for the crimes that they committed. Right. And also ensure that our justice system doesn't create a rotating door where people are stuck in the system. And what you're saying to me kind of reminds me of a conversation we had shortly. Recently, we had the founders of the advocacy group Tennessee Voices for Victims. And they talked about a philosophical change that they took to their work. After they met a group of men in prison for violent crimes, they, they said it was during that meeting that they realized those men, convicted criminals, 
we're victims as well. Absolutely. Talk to me about how that resonates with you. You know, that resonates to me. And I and I love the ladies that um, uh, Voices are Victim. Um, they actually work with Rafa Institute, who does our restorative justice program. Mm-hmm. And so they are working with us in juvenile court in our restorative justice. You know, we, we as a society are just in tuned with if you do this crime, you got to serve time. We are not looking past what true accountability should look like. And that's when we have to change the conversation. Um, when you just lock someone up in a cell and say, go in that cell, think about what you did, learn from it and change your ways. A lot of times that doesn't work. But when we take the time to say, what happened to you? What happened to you to make you get to this point? And we make that person, we work with that person on learning what that trigger was or what happened to them. That's true accountability. And so when you look at programs like restorative justice, where you're talking with the person who caused the offense, and you're also talking to the person who was the victim of the offense, and you're talking about what does justice look like? Most of the time, it's not about just lock this person away for the rest of their life so that we never see them again. It's about, I need to be healed. I need to know why you broke into my home. Or I need to know why you killed my sister. I need to know what was going on. What can we do to make sure that you never do stuff like that ever again, and that you understand the impact that what you did had on me, had on my family, had on her children, all of that. If we start thinking about how we can help people heal, whether they're the offender who also is probably a victim from their past as well, or whether it's truly the person who suffered the offense, suffered the the crime, and how can we help them to get to a point where they feel healthy again? That's what a system that works should be thinking about. So from the course of your career, being a public defender to a magistrate, then to a juvenile court judge, did you have this philosophy in mind as you progressed? You know, um, I will say as a public defender, we used to do some mediation work. And it wasn't the quite same as the restorative justice, but it was getting to that point. And I remember Joe Engel um, was around back in those days, and he ran the, um, I think it was called the Neighborhood um, Justice Center, I think is what the name was. And he was instrumental on when I became the juvenile court judge, uh, swinging back around to me and saying, remember when you were a public defender and we used to do this mediation? Well, I've got a better program. I've got a better idea. Let's look at restorative justice. And he connected me with um, Impact Justice and Sujatha Baliga, who runs Impact Justice out of California. And we got to meet. We got to learn more about restorative justice. We got to learn about how it really does a much better job of working with the victims, how the victims who go through restorative justices programs are about 95% satisfied with the results, how they get to be empowered by being at the table and looking that person in the eye and say, this is what you did to hurt me. And this is how it happened. 
So I think in the beginning, I knew a little about, you know, some ways to sit people at the table, but it was never for, um, you know, violent crimes. It was more like vandalisms and things like that. But as I've grown older in the system and, and as I learn and seen things work better, um, restorative justice works well for violent crimes. Last question for you. What can we all understand better about the justice system, crime, restorative justice, and people's lives so we can have honest, real conversations about the best ways for our society to move forward? You left me with a hard question. Yes. <laughs> I, you know, I, only, I have to. <laughs> yes. Yes. You know, you know, I think one of the things that we have to always recognize is that we are all human and that we all make mistakes. And that, number one, we have to learn to help one another overcome overcome the, heal, the the victimization that they may have had as a young person, overcome um, the needs that they didn't have. Um, a lot of the people that are in prisons, are in jails, um, have significant mental health issues, have significant um, um, addictions, um, have significant um, learning disabilities. And what we are doing is we are just warehousing people and not trying to help them to get better. But if we as a community, as a country, if we come together and say our number one goal is to help one another, we could change the way that we do our juvenile system, uh, excuse me, our entire criminal system if we learn how to better help one another. Judge Sheila Calloway is the presiding judge of the Davidson County Juvenile Court. Judge Calloway, always such a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it. Thank you for the invitation. And thanks to you for tuning in this hour. This is Nashville as a production of Nashville Public Radio. Today's episode was produced by Char Daston. It was directed by Elizabeth Burton. Laura Boach is our technical director. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blake. If you enjoyed our conversation today, there's more where this came from. Listen to our unabridged conversation with Judge Calloway at WPLN.org or wherever you get your podcasts. And the conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil A. Colonna. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other.